0: As you may know, today is Pentecost, and so let's read from Acts chapter 2, the story of Pentecost, and so we'll read the whole chapter. It's quite a long chapter, 47 verses, but we'll read the whole thing. So Acts chapter 2, this is on page 1088 in your pew Bible. And Acts chapter 2, and we begin at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent, rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in in our own language, to which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? Others were mocking and saying, They're full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice, and declared to them, Men of Judea, And all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence. For he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you, Regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified, and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about three thousand souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So far then the reading of our scripture this morning. And as I've said, congregation, today is Pentecost, and I'd like to reflect on that with you this morning as we look at this scripture. The the feast of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, is often undervalued uh, in the the Christian church, Uh, much like Ascension Day is often not given the uh, importance that it deserves. But Pentecost and Ascension go together, don't they? They are really... uh, well, they're not the same, but they are—they belong together, right? Christ's ascension into heaven and the descent. So Christ's ascent into heaven and the Spirit's descent upon his people. So, we we, we always want to hold those things together. Uh, Jesus' ascent, ascension into heaven in victory. He sits at the right hand of God the Father on high, and then he pours out his Spirit upon his orphaned church, as it were, right? Because his church, he's left his church, he's left them behind. And that caused them great sadness. But you remember that Jesus comforted his, his disciples by telling them that the Spirit would come down upon them. And I'd like to look at that with you as we look through those various scriptures which I've given you in the first point there, Pentecost and prophecy. But before I do that, just a quick word about the word Pentecost itself. Because you know that the word Pentecost was an Old Testament feast, not a New Testament feast. It just so happens that the Holy Spirit was poured out on his church on the day of Pentecost. But the day of Pentecost in the Old Testament calendar was the Feast of Weeks. So look with me at the Old Testament calendar a minute. And you see that in the first month, these are the the feasts that took place in the spring. There There were feasts that took place in the spring in Israel and there were feasts that took place in the fall. Now, in the spring was the greatest feast, right? Which was on day 10, that the Israelites went out and they chose a lamb and they took that in with them and kept that lamb with the family until day 14, upon which day they killed that lamb and they spread the blood on the door frames of their house. And this is, of course, the, the feast of Passover, isn't it? That Passover lamb shed its blood so that the angel of destruction would not cut down the firstborn of the Israelite households. So that happened on day 10 and then day 14 of the first month. Then on day 15 to 21 began the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the day after the Passover began the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when the Israelites were only allowed to eat unleavened bread, or we might say crackers today, right? It it wasn't a bread that rose, it was like a dry cracker. Okay, not, not really the nicest thing to eat, but it wasn't meant to be the nicest thing to eat, was it? It was meant to remind them of what had God had done for them in the, uh, in the Exodus, when they were released from the bondage of Pharaoh and brought out into the Promised Land. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread continued from day 15 to day 21, one week. Then you have the Feast of Weeks. And notice on day 16... Then the Israelites began to count. And you counted 50 days. Now the Feast of Weeks wasn't 50 days, right? The Feast of Weeks came on the 50th day after the day of, the, of the, um, the first day of, of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, on day 16. So from that day they would count 50 days. And on the 50th day, right? So uh, you, you folks who can do math here, Right? can figure that that's uh, seven weeks, isn't it? And in the scripture terminology, it's called a week of weeks. That's how the Hebrews would mention that. That's how they would speak of it. A week of weeks, so 49 days, right? Plus that 16, so 50 days. And then you came to Pentecost, which is just the Greek term for the Feast of Weeks. Now, the Feast of Weeks came at the end of the harvest, or just, I should say, as the, as the, the harvest was beginning to be gathered. Right? As the harvest was beginning to be gathered in, then they would have this feast of celebration, the feast of weeks. And I put the scripture text on the on the outline there, so if you wish to follow up and that you can read about these feasts that came on the Israelite calendar. So the Greek term then is Pentecost. And it was on the day of Pentecost then, as you see in Acts two, verse one, that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. Now, why was it on the day of Pentecost? Why did God choose in his sovereign grace, in his sovereign plan, to pour out the Spirit of God on Pentecost? And here, congregation, I have to say, I don't know. I don't know that the Scriptures tell us that. Now, we can speculate, can't we, that since it was the first gathering in of the harvest, the harvest was just beginning to be gathered in after those 50 days. They were just beginning to gather in the harvest. That maybe the symbolism there was that now God would begin to to pour out the spirit his spirit on his church and to empower them to gather in a harvest and that this was the first of it right we can we can kind of hear hints of that in in acts 2 verse 21 and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the lord shall be saved right everyone Jew and Gentile alike whoever hears the gospel whoever hears the good news about Jesus and believes it and embraces it for themselves will be saved Well, that's very possible, but the scripture is not explicit on that. So that's the the day of Pentecost then. And and really, Pentecost, to, to call it Pentecost, is a bit misleading, isn't it? It's not really Pentecost, it just happens to be that God baptized his church in the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. But really, this is, in scripture terminology, the church's baptism. It's their baptizing day. It's the day when the church was baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's a better way to think of it, and that's also the title then of the sermon this morning, Baptized with the Spirit. Now, I would like to look with you at some of these texts then, which help us to understand what God did when he baptized his church in the Spirit. Now, the first text I've given you there is Numbers 11 and verse 29. And this is an interesting text in our understanding of Pentecost. Or the church's baptism. Because here, uh, some men in Numbers 11 have gone out into the church and they're prophesying. That means they've received a word from God directly and they're bringing it to the people. That's what a prophecy was. And some of the, uh, uh, in verse 28, Numbers 11, verse 28, Joshua the son of Nun, he comes to Moses and he says, uh, Moses, stop those people. They're not supposed to prophesy, only you are supposed to be our prophet. Stop them, don't let them do that. And Moses' answer is very interesting. In Numbers eleven twenty nine. 29, But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his Spirit upon them. Upon all of them. Well, by implication, then, we can hear from Moses' comments there, Right? that under the old covenant, the Spirit of God did not come down in great measure upon all of God's people. Now that can be a bit difficult to understand because, well, then how could they have been saved if the Spirit of God didn't come down upon them? Well, you have to make a careful distinction here, don't you? Of course, for these people to believe and to to come to salvation, to have faith in God, the Spirit of God had to regenerate them, right? To give them that new heart which brought them to faith. That's for every Christian of all time and in all places. No question about that. But now it's more a a thought of prophecy that the Spirit of God would come down upon his people and give them these gifts to serve amongst his people be it by way of prophecy. Remember that elsewhere in the Old Testament we're told that uh, Aholiab, remember him? He was given skill by the Spirit of God to do the tabernacle and to do the fine craftsmanship that was needed in the work of the tabernacle. Remember that Samson, the Spirit of God came down on Samson and gave him great power to do the mighty feats that he performed. But, but that's how you see it, isn't it? The Spirit of God came upon this one, and upon that one, and upon this one. But not upon all the people of God. And that's why we say that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, a dispensation, if we can talk of it that way, was deficient in that regard, wasn't it? God had not yet poured out His Spirit upon all the people and to empower all of them to do the work that He had called them to do. And this is something that the children of Israel were taught by God to look for and to anticipate in the coming times. Again, in Isaiah 32, verse 15, we have another a beautiful prophecy that teaches us and that shows us how God taught His people to look forward to the coming of the Spirit. Now again, here we have a prophecy where Isaiah is talking, and if you read the whole chapter, you can see this, but the the city is brought into desolation because of the judgments of God. But then, Isaiah says in verse 15, so this is Isaiah 32 and verse 15, Until, until this time, the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, And then what happens? Listen to the effects. And the wilderness becomes a fertile field. And the fertile field is considered a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness. Righteousness will abide in the fertile field. And the work of righteousness will be peace, or will result in peace. And the service of righteousness, quietness, and confidence forever. Then my people will live in a peaceful habitation, and in secure dwellings, and in undisturbed resting places What's going to do all that, congregation? What's going to cause the desolate land to give, to be fruitful and to even be a forest? The Spirit of God will be poured out and will cause that life to abound and to spring forth. Again, the children of Israel are taught to look forward, to anticipate that glorious day when the Spirit of God will not come upon one here and another there and another here. But, but the people of God will be drenched. And here you have to think of the word baptism as like an inundation, right? As a flood coming down upon them and touching all the people of God. Now, I preached from this pulpit on Ezekiel 36. Remember, we talked, what will bring the people of God to, to obey with a glad and a cheerful heart? And remember, I will give them a new heart and a new spirit I will put within them, says God. Again, teaching them to look forward, to anticipate the day That we're speaking of this morning. Now, when Jesus comes, he speaks a fair bit about this. Oh, but before we get to Jesus, we have John the Baptizer. So, in Matthew three and verse eleven, Matthew three verse eleven, we have the ministry of John the Baptist, and he talks in verse ten about the axe being laid at the root of the tree. Right there will be a judgment. The tree will be cut down. It's God's judgment. But then, in verse 11, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Oh, how the the children of Israel, they they longed for those days, at least the, the pious ones amongst them, Right, You think of Anna in the temple and Simeon, how they longed for that time when the Spirit of God would come down in a baptism, in a flood upon them, and would, 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 would empower them and, and, and give them a new heart, and would bring them to love and to serve the God cheerfully, and to do these, these mighty acts on behalf of God, being baptized with the Spirit and with fire. And John the baptized... John the Baptizer, he he lives right on the cusp of that time. He says, it's right around the corner. There's one coming. Who's going to do that? That thing that we've been looking for for so long, it's right around the corner. Hang on for just a little while longer is the ministry of John the Baptist. And finally, that one comes. And in John chapter 14 and 15 and 16, Jesus gives us this prophecy of what he's going to do when he leaves. John 14, verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. There's Jesus prophesying and teaching them that right around the corner, that when He leaves, He's going to pour out, He's going to send the Holy Spirit And in this particular context, it's the Father. It's the Father who will send the Spirit in Jesus' name. And pay attention, congregation, to what He will do. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So, what does the Spirit of God do in His ministry when He comes on the day of Pentecost? He's going to bring back to their minds the things that Jesus Christ taught them. He's going to bring it back to their minds. He's going to guide them into that stream, as it were. And He's going to empower and equip them to declare Jesus Christ to the world. He's going to equip them to take the things of Christ and to preach that to a fallen world. Now, if you turn in John 15 and verse 26, we have a very similar thing. When the Helper comes, or the Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, Who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also. You see, notice now, congregation, that the Holy Spirit isn't coming to make them Christians, right? He's not coming to to change their hearts so that they believe in Christ for the first time. Now, of course, we know the Spirit of God does that, there's no question about that, right? But now at Pentecost, we're talking about the Spirit coming to his people who are already Christians bringing back to their minds the things of Christ and empowering them then, as it says in verse 27, and you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. The Spirit of God will bring back the things of Christ to their mind and he will empower them to go forth into the world and to preach Christ. I heard one time a, a, one of my teachers at college, I believe, said that the Holy Spirit is kind of like a searchlight. right? When, when you have a beautiful flag or a beautiful piece of art, what do we do, right? Or what do these people do? They'll, they'll put a light, right, that shines on that flag or that shines on the art. Now, you're not supposed to focus on the light, right? The light is beautiful. It helps you to see the, the artwork well. But it's, it's not about the light. You don't come and say, "Oh, well, look at this light. Isn't that amazing? What a beautiful light. No, you, you look on what it shines, what it illuminates. You look on the piece of art or you see the flag. Now, in the same way, the Spirit of God The Spirit of God does not call attention to himself. Now, of course, the Spirit of God is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our uh, uh, esteem. No question about it. But the ministry of the Spirit is to point us to Christ, to shine the light on Christ. The Spirit of God glorifies Christ. And we are to see that. And that is what the ministry of the Spirit does in our life. Now, one last verse from Jesus, and that's in Acts 16 and verse 14. Uh, we have, again, the, the really the same idea, right? Uh, let me start in verse 13. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will speak. He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me. That is, He will glorify me, Jesus, for He will take of mine and will disclose it to you. That is what the Spirit of God does. He shines the light on Christ and He brings us to see and to love and to adore the Savior. Now, we can turn in the last place then to Acts 1 and verse 4. And now uh, you know that this this glorious day that the Old Testament has looked forward to for so long is here. And when Jesus ascends into heaven, He says in verse 4, Acts 1 and verse 4, and these are the texts, this is actually the text of the sermon this morning. Gathering them together, he, that is Jesus, commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John, and here Jesus just repeats the word of John the Baptizer, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, not many days. In other words, it's only a few days from now ahead. And so it was that when the day of Pentecost, when the day of the Feast of Weeks, that 50 days out from Passover, on that day they were gathered. They were in a spirit of expectation. They were waiting. And suddenly it happened. And this glorious day congregation was accompanied with these remarkable signs. The Spirit of God came down. The, 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 the Jewish people there, again, these are all Jewish believers, right? They were all Suddenly, given the gifts of speaking in other languages, they had tongues of fire uh, separating from their heads and going on all the different believers. And they were were fired with the Spirit of God, as it were. They were were indwelt and they were filled. And, And again, the word given us in the scripture is they were baptized. The Spirit of God did not just fall on Peter, it did not just fall on James or one of the other apostles. But the whole set of believers were drenched, was inundated in the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God came down upon them with power. Now, I move to my, the second thing on my outline here, congregation, because I've called this the Jewish baptism. Because what we have in Acts chapter 2 is the baptism of the Jewish church. The baptism of the Jewish church. They are baptized in the Holy Spirit, but they are all Jews at this point. If you look in Acts 2 and verse 10, let me just make that point. Notice that very last clause there. It lists all these different places that these Jews had come from. But notice that they are both Jews and proselytes. In other words, they are all either ethnic Jews or they are people who have converted to the Jewish religion. They are all people who are religiously Jews. They are adherents to Judaism. But now, when they have heard the gospel... They have come to believe in Christ. Not, they, that didn't happen at Pentecost. That had happened earlier. But now on the day of Pentecost, as they gather together, they have their baptism. They are, they are given the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. Now, what is the result? What is the result of this? Well, again, the result isn't their salvation. Again, I want to make that clear. Right? That had happened long. The Old Testament saints weren't looking and waiting for a, for, the, for a time of salvation, right? That had happened all throughout redemptive history. This was a time where the people of God would receive the Spirit of God to love Christ and to preach Christ. And the result then, as we have it there, is that there is this new body that is formed. And that new body is come to have been called, in the scripture terminology, the church. And they are baptized by one spirit into a new organization. This quote from Bavink, let me draw your attention to it in the, in the notes there. At that point, that is at Pentecost, the church of Christ was in principle detached from Israel's national existence. Right, The old organization was a, a nation, that was the old organization. It was the nation of, of Jews that God, you might say, those were the people of God. But now at the day of Pentecost, the church is detached from that national existence. It's cut loose. No longer is it tied to the nation of Israel. From the priests and the law, says Bavink, the temple and the altar, it became an independent religious assembly in its own right. That's the church. It now acts in the place of ancient Israel as the people, indeed, the church of God. Now, it's wonderful to hear Bavink, but we'd like to hear it from the Word of God. So if you turn to me to Ephesians 2, verse 18, let me try to show you how Paul... And by the way, the the book of Ephesians, or Paul's letter to the Ephesians, is really, uh, the whole book has this subject as as its subject. This is one of the reasons Paul wrote the letter of Ephesians is to show the people of Ephesus the new existence of this new body of believers, this new organization, you might say, called the church. The epistle, or the letter of Paul to Ephesus is the letter about the church. Let me just turn with you to Ephesians 2 and verse 18. I'm sorry, Ephesians 2 and verse 11. Ephesians 2 and verse 11, where we read, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, Who are called uncircumcision, and by the way, they were they were sneered at, right? You are the uncircumcision. You're not part of the people of God. Uh, Who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. They were not part of this organization. They were not part of this new organization formed at Pentecost. They were not part of the old organization. Separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who who made both groups into one, right the Jew and Gentile, he joined them into one. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. And what was that wall? By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so that he himself might make the two, that is Jew and Gentile, into one new man, establishing thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father." So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple into the Lord. in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So, congregation, Paul is teaching there very clearly, right, that by the death of Christ on the cross... There was now a way of salvation for Jew and Gentile. Their sins could be forgiven. They could be reconciled with God this way, right? Vertically with God. But they were also reconciled with each other by believing in Christ for salvation. And by faith, they come together into one new body, right? And there is this new organization, the church. And how is that church built up? How does that church grow? How is it bound together? We have in verse 22, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God, in or by the Spirit. The Spirit of God does that. He is in the business then of uniting and bringing together the people of God into one new body, centered in in the cross, centered in the death and the dying of Christ. Christ is the cornerstone, and the whole building beneath Him, fitly framed together, is that building, that new body, that church, that the Spirit of God is, is in the business of binding together day by day. Now, in Ephesians 4, verse 3, you'll notice that the Paul continues, again, on kind of the same thought, where he he counsels, he commands the Ephesians, in Ephesians 4, verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. And the unity of the Spirit, Their congregation, is the unity that is produced by the Spirit. The unity that the Spirit produces, that he gives. And of course that began on the day of Pentecost and it continues until the end of time. The Spirit binds his people together. Now in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13, we have Paul making the similar point. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13. Where we read, for by one Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Now when did that happen? That happened, congregation, on the day of Pentecost. And it continues to happen. But on the day of Pentecost was the glorious baptism of the people of God. And then we were baptized into one new body, and that is the Church of God. Now, very quickly, I have to also make clear, congregation, the Gentile baptism. My third point in my outline there, what about the Gentiles? If Acts 2 was when the Jews were baptized into this one new body, what about the Gentiles? Well, you probably hadn't heard this before, congregation, but there's another baptism, another Pentecost. As I may say, in Acts chapter 10, and this is the Gentile, the Gentile baptism, and that is in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, uh, where again you have the the preaching of Peter, and uh, for time's sake I jump to Acts 10 verse 44. Acts 10 verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell. Upon all those who were listening. Upon who? Upon all those who were listening. And that's the difference, congregation, between the Old Testament dispensation and the New Testament ta- Testament times. That now the Holy Spirit comes upon all the people of God. The Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers, right? all the Jewish believers, who came with Peter were amazed. Why are they so amazed? because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. So in this new body that God is now creating, he's he's, he's now pulled in the Gentiles as well. So that in this new body that God formed on the day of Pentecost, the Gentiles are brought in as well. And the Jewish believers are amazed. They look and they say, why, the Holy Spirit has fallen upon the Gentiles as well. And then what's the obvious implication of this? Verse 47 Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Well, right, that, that's the obvious implication. If these people have now, are now also being gathered together into this body, if they also now are being connected to the, to the death and dying of Christ and receiving His salvation and coming under His blood and under His righteousness, why then, they also can receive the visible sign of that and they can be baptized well we have a gentile baptism and a jewish baptism and i see that my time has come to a is rapidly coming to a close so congregation i just want to very quickly make these last two points of application and really they're so obvious because we've we've pounded away on these this morning but the holy spirit unites and you know it's it's such a shame to me to think that in our in our times that we live the word diversity has been hijacked by people who have no Christian sympathies whatsoever. But you know, let's take it back. Because the church is a diverse group of people. I know our church may not be so diverse, right? And we long for the day that it would be. But, but the church of God, dear friends, all over the length and breadth of the worth, world is a, is a diverse group of people from all backgrounds, from all, all uh, uh, rich and poor, all different languages, And the Holy Spirit brings us all together. And you know that in the the last days, when we stand before God, when He comes again, we have such a vision of that given us in Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10, where John looks. He says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation, and all tribes and people and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, Where congregation is there real diversity in this world? In the church of God. In the church of God, there's real diversity. Because God's Spirit comes down no longer just upon Jewish people, but now He comes down upon the Dutch, upon the German, upon the Africans, right? Upon the Russians, upon the North Koreans, upon all the Arab peoples and all throughout the world. And congregation, if you can just kind of close your eyes for a minute and think that even at this very hour, of course with all the adjustments of time zones, there is a people praising God today. They're lifting up their voices in praise. They're hymning the praise of God, perhaps at this very moment. And it's one awesome sacrifice of of incense rising up to the God of heaven. And in it all, you can't see Him, you can't feel Him, but through it all is the Spirit of God. He goes from from church to church. He goes from pew to pew. And He works and He binds us together. Do you see, congregation, why the Bible puts such an emphasis on the unity of the body of Christ? Because it's what the Spirit is doing. The Spirit of God is busy uniting the people of God. And if there are those of us who are trying to disunite or to fracture the body of Christ... It's because the Spirit of God is not in you. Because we're taught so clearly that the Spirit of God brings together. He brings together. The Holy Spirit unites. Very quickly, the Holy Spirit empowers. The Holy Spirit empowers. He said in Acts 1, verse 8, and you will be my witnesses. A congregation, that's the privilege of all the people of God. Not just me, not just the elders but of all the people of God. Why do I say that? Do I say that because I'm trying to twist your arm into doing something that that you don't want to do? No. Because, congregation, the Spirit of God has come down upon you. That if you're a believer in Christ today, not only did the Spirit of God bring you to Christ, but He now also binds you together in this new body and He baptizes you with His own gifts so that you would go forth and be witnesses to Christ all throughout this world. That is the beauty of of what he does. The Spirit of God, says Jesus, he shall glorify me. And congregation, what about your life? Can it be said about your life this morning? This one, this child, this man, this boy, this girl, he glorifies or she glorifies me. Her life, her words, they point to Christ. Well, May God bless these words to us, congregation, and help us to think and to rejoice in in the baptism of God's church, both for the Jews and the Gentiles, into one new body. Let us pray. Lord, we have heard this morning this glorious truth of Pentecost, that when you ascended on high into heaven, you were not there uh, sitting idly by, as it were, but you make intercession for your people, for your church, but you also pour out your spirit upon them. You baptize your church, both Jew and Gentile, into one new body. And these shall be your witnesses to the ends of the earth. Lord, I pray that we would feel and sense in our own minds and in our own hearts the power of the Spirit of God, enabling us, equipping us to go forward and to be witnesses to the ends of the world. Lord, I pray that as we are living in this privileged time, when we all may enjoy the work of the Spirit of God upon us, that we would give praise and glory and worship to your holy name for this unspeakable gift that you've given to us. And Lord, I pray that this gift of the Spirit would lead us to love the Lord Jesus Christ and to live for him, to pour out our lives unto you, to place our lives, to place all that we have and all that we are on an altar, and to offer it up to you as an acceptable sacrifice. Lord, remember us then in your mercy. Bless us this evening as we come together again. We pray, Lord, that this would be a good and edifying day. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.